When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the producer of this series. A few days after the US election, we hosted two titans of the contemporary European left Greece's former finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, and Guardian columnist, Owen Jones, to explore the theme of Owen's new book, This Land. Why did the Labour Party fail in the last British general election? And where does progressive politics go from here? Thank you very much. This is uh, a great privilege and a wonderful reversal, because usually when Owen and I get together, it's uh, to discuss a book of mine. Okay, so today we're here to discuss this land, this book. We're here to discuss uh, uh, the crushing defeat of the Labour Party in 2019. But so as not to begin uh, on a negative note, um, Owen and I share a family lesson. Owen in here, the book, writes, if there is anything I've learned from my family's decades of political commitment, I'm quoting now, uh, it's that history is not linear. A tale of victories followed by successes and yet more victories, but often defeats, setbacks, followed by victories, then more defeats and setbacks. Finally, you might get somewhere approximating to where you're going to. It's called a, uh, a struggle for a reason. It's what Tony Benn once said uh, when he had said that uh, there is no such thing as a final victory and there is no such thing as a final defeat. And um, it's, I think, a, a good uh, starting point for the conversation. But let me just take us a notch closer towards not pessimism, but, uh, you know, the realization of where we are by saying that, you know, Owen, it's not exactly cyclical, is it? We don't have, you know, defeats followed by victories, defeats. We have far too many defeats that we ha- than we have victories, don't we? Uh, yes, there have been uh, multiple defeats. And I suppose the real frustration of, and the bitter frustration of what happened the last few years was there was this, chance and opportunity to do what Thatcher did, which is to overturn the political and social settlement that presides in this country and replace it with a different one. You know, that's what Clement Attlee's post-war Labour government did in 1945. So even when it was ejected from office in 1951, the Conservatives couldn't dismantle the basic underpinnings of what Clement Attlee did, the National Health Service, the welfare state, the public ownership of key industries, the high marginal tax on the rich. All of those were were retained and there was triumphalism, you know, amongst the the Labour right that they had scored a permanent victory. And amongst Thatcher and her allies, there was this sense of that every Labour government, as Thatcher said, was a shifted society to the left, whilst the Tories stood pat. And obviously Thatcherism reversed that process. It imposed a new settlement, a privatisation, low taxes on the rich, a hobbled trade union movement. Uh, mass privatisation, deregulation, which New Labour then, when Thatcherism and, and, and the Tories were out of power, they could they humanised, they tried to humanise aspects, they trimmed around the edges, but they maintained the basic underpinnings. And you're right, in the last, since Thatcherism and Reaganism, neoliberalism has dominated global politics, we've had attempts, like in Greece, Syriza, of course, uh, we've seen the rise of the American left, Bernie Sanders, and then the likes of AOC and the squad. And we, we saw Podemos, uh, which is, of course, now in government in Spain. We saw the rise of the Portuguese left and we saw Corbynism here. And that was the, the bitter truth is, of course, none of those, although Podemos is, is in coalition, none of those have created a permanent new social and political settlement. We remain trapped within the rubric of Thatcherism and neoliberalism. And the defeats that were suffered in the 80s to the trade union movement and the left which is how we have to understand the world, the political reality of Britain today, 
there was an attempt to overturn that. That's what Corbynism was trying to do. And you're right, its defeat marked the defeat of an attempt to do what Thatcher and Attlee did before them. It was a terrible, terrible defeat. You mentioned two pivotal moments. One, of course, was the Attlee government in 1945, which transformed to the political economy of uh, Britain. And the other one was 1979, April. I remember I was there when Thatcher moved into 10 Downing Street. Mm-hmm. Bleak day uh, for me personally. Uh, but they were very powerful historic forces behind them, effectively, you know, sort of elevating them. In 1945, you had the end of the Second World War. You had the the troops coming back from the continent, radicalized by the experience of fighting against the Nazis in a continent where communists were at around 30-40%, even in countries like Italy and in France. And um, the great British establishment, and they had to come to terms with them. I mean, labor was propped up by the, the terror in the mind of the bourgeoisie that unless they gave the you know, sort of pensions or, you know, the NHS to the, to, to the many, to the masses, you know, maybe they would go you know, uh, the way in which the, the Polish bourgeoisie went or, you know, or the Soviet, the Russian bourgeoisie. And again, in uh, 1979, Uh, Thatcher had behind her this uh, tsunami of financialization, which was the result of the, the end of Bretton Woods. And of course, you know, Rupert Murdoch and the whole <laughs> kerfuffle of uh, the establishment. Whereas all the movements that came out of the crisis of 2008, you know, Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, Syriza in Greece, Podemos in Spain, Bernie Sanders in the United States. We had uh, popular support massive popular support, but historic forces that were not necessarily on our side and certainly an establishment that was weaponized and ready to destroy us. And finally, and that's where I want to end up, divisions amongst ourselves. Because every single one of those movements that you refer to, whether it was Syriza or Sanders or the Labour Party, we were defeated from within. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was definitely a commonality. Podemos, of course, have, have had their huge internal divisions as well. And I suppose the, the issue, what was so different, I mean, if we compare Corbynism to Syriza or Podemos as well, the, the difference is you, you saw this common crisis of European social democracy, which accelerated in the 2010s after the financial crash, and it crumbled in different directions. The rise of new right-wing populists and often far-right formations, the rise of new left parties like Syriza and Podemos, and civic nationalism as well, like the Scottish National Party or Catalan nationalism as well. But what was interesting, I mean, what was each, I mean, each adopted, each kind of movement was very specific to the culture and context of each country. So if you look at Ireland, who's benefited most from the left surge, it's Sinn Féin, it's the Republican movement. So each has found its expression its own way. And in Britain, it was the Labour Party. And that's what was so different about, you know, I mean, this expression, we use this expression, PASOCification, of course, uh, the process by, because PASOC, for those who don't know, is, is, uh, is the Greek sister party of, of the British Labour Party, won 40% in 2009, and then ended up in the 2010s getting 4%. And obviously, huge amounts of its support went instead to Syriza, offering a more radical proposition and an and attempt to begin with to take on austerity. But what happened in Labour is it happened within, you know, you had almost PASOK in the Greek sense and Syriza in the same party. And where it, it was like, uh, you know, with Syriza, it would be, you've got the Syriza as a leadership and most of its parties are, most of its MPs are PASOK. And, or in Spain, where it'd be like the Spanish socialists and Podemos being in the same party. And that was obviously always something that was, you know, it hobbled Corbynism from the beginning because What scared the establishment, particularly about Corbynism, was it had an anti, uh, an extra parliamentary orientation. It, it wasn't like any other previous Labour leadership in that it sought its base of power, not from within the parliamentary party, but from extra parliamentary forces, not least the mass membership that was created. The Labour Party's membership had a long period of secular decline, like most European political parties, until 2015 when it exploded in size. So you had a mass membership that was supportive of the leadership and a parliamentary party and a party machine, which a leaked report a few months ago really underlined the bitter hostility of a party machine who, frankly, many of their members hate the left 
more than they would hate the Conservative Party. It's an ideological bitterness that often comes through student politics in Britain, where they see anyone to the left of Genghis Khan as a trot. But then within Corbynism, what was interesting is, of course, after 2017, before that, the leadership, you had John McDonnell and you had Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott and those key figures. After 2017, the unity within the operation, like the chief of staff and other key figures, they were all united from 2017 onwards. All, there was a mass splintering of the operation at the top over anti-Semitism and, of course, above all else, over Brexit. And that Brexit was a culture war, which is lethal to left-wing politics based on class, instead of being about the vast majority's economic interests. That's my cat yowling. The vast majority uh, having economic interests, not just different, but on a conflict with the elite. Instead, people were redefined as remainers and leavers, which cut across class lines in a particularly toxic way for the Labour Party. And those divisions opened up within the membership, within the parliamentary party, and within the Corbyn project itself. So the steely unity of the 2017 election campaign dissipated. So you had not just the opposition from the parliamentary party, you had, oppos you had a factionalised, fragmented Corbyn leadership. And frankly, by the very end, that operation had more or less disintegrated as a unified force. A couple of comments, if I may. The first one, the... From where I'm standing, the difference between uh, the Labour Party and where, you know, PASOK and Syriza coexisted and still do, and what's happening in Spain or in Greece where there are separate parties, that can only be explained institutionally due to first-past-the-post. It's first-past-the-post that keeps everyone under the same tent uh, because of the terror of, you know, once you step out, the great big wolf of first-past-the-post will gobble you up. So when I resigned from Syriza in 2015, uh, I was very um, careful and, and coy about creating a new party. But in the end, when we created a new party, Mera 25 in 2018, um, then we were elected because we have a kind of proportional representation, not exactly proportional representation. Whereas now, as we speak, the Corbynistas who are looking at uh, the state of the Labour Party, they're looking at Sir Keir Starmer uh, trying to expel Jeremy Paul Corbyn to turn the, the whole saga, anti-Semitism saga, into a close for moment uh, for purging people like you, effectively, uh, <laughs> and uh, John McDonnell and um, the, the, the radicals from the Labour Party. Uh, they can't readily do what we, we did in Greece or in Spain, which is set up a new radical party, get elected, and then be ready to take advantage from within parliament, with a small presence in parliament, of the collapse of the former social democratic party that then gets co-opted by big business finance and so on. Yeah, I mean, this is what I said about first past the post with when you get political parties, whether it be the Conservatives or, or Labour, where you have two factions or multiple factions who are actually fundamentally very hostile politically to each other. And it's a bit like a, uh, a married couple where, where all the love is gone, uh, separate beds, leaving passive aggressive notes on the fridge, can't stand the sight of each other, but they can't afford to buy separate flats. So they're trapped together. And that is, of course, what First Past the Post does. You end up with multiple different factions having to be glued together. And actually, if proportional representation exists. The idea these different factions would be in the same party is just a complete nonsense. I mean, there are, you know, you can see that, you saw that within the Conservative Party, you had the Remainer, uh, more liberal Conservative wing, and then you had the more right-wing populist Brexit wing. And within the Labour Party, you had the Labour left, which was very weak before 2015, and then erupted in, ironically, because of a new electoral system for the Labour leadership, which was designed by the party right specifically to weaken uh, the left and the trade unions and, and was a prerequisite to Jeremy Corbyn being elected. For a long time, lots of Labour MPs, dozens of Labour MPs, would have left the Labour Party and set themselves up as a separate party if they believed you know, they would get re-elected. Now, some of them did, and because of First Past the Post and their marginal support in British society... They all got absolutely derisory votes or shellacking, humiliating results uh, in, in the places they st stood. But that is the problem. The problem is for the left, why was the Labour Party always a terrain of struggle for the left? It's because, firstly, the trade union link, which is pretty unique as a European Social Democratic Party, because you get a link 
with the organized masses of working class people in this country, millions of whom represented by those unions, and the electoral system makes it near impossible. And every single attempt by the left ever since the Labour Party was founded, there's a massive graveyard, a full graveyard of attempts to create new left-wing political parties, all of which crashed uh, because of the first-past-the-post system. There are places where people would have voted for those parties, but they didn't because they were understandably legitimately worried that if they did, they would divide the anti-conservative vote and let a conservative MP win in their seat instead. You might as well have voted for the Tories. So people then will say, I'm fed up with Labour, but I have to vote for them because to not do so would be to split the anti-Tory vote and lead to a Tory government. And, the com- you know, we have the Communist Party, the most successful uh, extra Labour Party left formation, and they won two MPs. And that was in the aftermath of World War II with the Soviet Union's prestige at its very peak after the defeat of the Nazis. So it's just it just hasn't happened. And you what we've seen and, the, you know, there was an exception to this. But it, it's it in no way proves any rule, which is the Scottish National Party, which is not a left wing party, but a civic nationalist party. And they did manage to wipe out the Scottish Labour Party, uh, you know, in 2015, that effectively decimated the, the, the Labour Party. Um, but of course, that was a civic nationalist movement, which could straddle class, straggle a left right divide in a way a left party can't. And the other, because people often look at UKIP and Nigel Farage's party is as an example to follow and they go well look even if you don't succeed in getting lots of mps elected look what ukip did they they won they didn't win seats but they managed to effectively take over the conservative party and get their way in a referendum because of the pressure they exerted but the problem with that argument is it's easier for a right-wing populist party to win over working class supporters from a social democratic party than it is for a left wing populist party to win over supporters of the conservatives. Just a basic fact. You can, it's easy to win over, you know, a left wing populist party is going to only really win over people from Labour's natural coalition, whilst UKIP succeeded in winning over voters from Labour, as well as the conservatives, working class voters in particularly northern and, and midland towns. And that's why the Labour Party, the electoral system, stops the left from creating their own party. Well, we're here to discuss your book. So oh, uh, let me firstly congratulate you on it. Um, it reads be- beautifully and it just flows. And yes. also it gives readers like myself an opportunity to recount things that we have known as well as to learn things that we haven't known. I'm keenly aware of the dangers involved in writing a history of a defeat um, because I wrote one <laughs> recently of our, the defeat of the Greek Spring in 2015. And I, my, my great fear was, you know, I knew so much of the palace intrigue that had happened, but I didn't want the book to be about that. Uh, I wanted it to be more about the historic forces spewing the intrigue, because as you say in your book, and as we all know, there were two periods in the Corbyn era. There was a period before the 2017 general election and the period after that. Uh, but we saw what happened. I mean, he won the, 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 a larger share of the vote uh, than Blair. And then after that, it all started getting unstuck. My view is that it, the reason, of course, was Brexit and the timetable of Article 50, which was um, in conjunction with uh, the radical Remainers' determination to have a people's vote, which was, I think, a catastrophic error of judgment on their part. And nevertheless, it put the Corbynistas in, into that kind of um, internal strike. But I'll, allow me just, I, I think I need to, to do this. I was reading in the New Statesman something that Len McClaskey wrote about your book, and I'd like you to, to respond to that. He said, and I, I quote, let yourself down by appearing to slide into the gossiping and trivia of, of office politics, presenting it as though uh, it accurately frames the bigger picture. Now, you will have uh, your right to reply to this, but I would like to concentrate a lot more on the bigger picture. What were the historic socioeconomic forces? Because, you see, uh, we, you t- we talked about Thatcher before. British capitalism was undergoing a crisis, a crisis of profitability, which she came and overcame by, in two ways. First, she destroyed industry, so there was no issue of having you know, a profitable steel industry anymore because she shut it down. Uh, and she replaced it with financialization and the real estate and the SPIVs. 
Now, what's happening today in Britain's economy over the last two or three years that explains what's happening under the surface? Yeah, I mean, you know, Lemon Husky's a comrade who I hugely respect. I did respond, actually. I did a, I did a very long response to, uh, to Len's position, which I just respectfully disagree with him on. But in terms of, I mean, the way, firstly, of understanding where Corbynism came from, by the way, because Corbynism obviously didn't appear from a clear blue sky, it appeared because you got a large constituency in Britain forged by the mass protests and mass movements of the anti-war movement, particularly against Iraq, of the anti sorry, before that, the anti-capitalism movements before that in, in G20 and so on. Uh, and then uh, you got the crash and you got protests, against, the movements against tax avoidance, the student movement against uh, tuition fees and the anti-austerity protests. And they, this forged a constituency in British society that felt disaffected and alienated and unrepresented in Parliament. And when in 2015, Jeremy Corbyn stood, that's when that constituency that had been forged partly by those protest movements found their, you know, it was a lightning rod for them. And that's what happened. But in terms of the economy and the way we got to understand the crisis, of course, in, in, in the British, of the British state in the last few years is the one statistic above all else that you have, that the only way you can understand the tumult of British society is that Britain has suffered, British workers have suffered the longest squeeze in wages of any country in the OECD other than Greece, other than Greece, number two. And the longest- We are the champions. You cannot take away that gold medal from us. It's not gonna be taken away, no. You know, we are far ahead of you. Far ahead. (laughs) Um, And the longest squeeze in Britain since the Napoleonic War. And because of the, the economic model constructed by Thatcherism, which as you said, was about financialization, which stripped away secure, industrial jobs which supported communities and gave people a sense of pride without being overly dewy-eyed about it because these were back-breaking, physically arduous jobs that damaged people's physical health. They were often dominated by men. But, you know, these these industries were stripped away and what filled the vacuum were often low-paid, hiring-fire, insecure jobs uh, in the service sector, less paid and less and, and with less prestige attached to them. And you've got entire communities in this country which used to be forged around steelworks, mines, docks, which were all decimated and, and, and never recovered. And because as well, that, you know, the, the, the property bubble, which was, was nurtured by Thatcherism, has led, including the mass flogging off of council housing, uh, has led to a massive housing crisis, which has particularly hammered, of course, younger people, because those council homes, which were bought under right to buy, Four in ten of them are now let out by private landlords, often to the children of the people who bought their flats and their houses under right to buy. And so an entire generation has been driven into an unregulated uh, rip-off private rented sector, which lacks security. So what, you know, neoliberalism's promise, what was neoliberalism's promise? It was freedom, that the individual would be freed from the dead weight of the state and collectivism. But what is bred for an entire generation is insecurity, and insecurity isn't freedom at all. And what we've seen, I abhor generational politics, but the basic divide that has opened up in British society is generational. And that's because on the one hand, if you're a pensioner, you have the triple lock in pension, which protects your pensions, which have gone up. Uh, You mostly own your own home. Property prices have gone up, partly because of quantitative easing. If you're a pensioner and, and home ownership's increased, you are better off than you were when the financial crash happened and you're likely to be socially conservative in issues of immigration and multiculturalism. For working age people, they've suffered that unprecedented squeeze in wages, as I've said, a housing crisis. If they're the half of young people who go to university are having their incomes devoured by student debt, and they're often, they get that debt, and then they end up doing working for Deliveroo and other low-paid, insecure companies as well. Their services have been decimated. Uh, their youth services were decimated when they, they were younger. Their social security has been cut. They are significantly worse off than they were before the crash. And they're likely to have more socially progressive views. And that's what drove Corbynism. Corbynism appealed to both those senses of economic insecurity and socially progressive values that exist amongst younger people that was unable to win over socially conservative homeowning predominantly relatively economically secure, big caveat, the 1.9 million pensioners in poverty in Britain, that their, their living standards were relatively uh, protected. 
And it's that division, which is why the Conservative Party have an overwhelming majority of the old and the Labour Party have an overwhelming majority of the young. And that's unprecedented. In 1983, Margaret Thatcher won a landslide, including from the young. In 1987, there was barely any difference between how young people voted Labour or Conservative. This is unprecedented, that divide. And it's precisely because of that hollowing out of secure jobs, uh, the deindustrialization, the failure to replace those jobs, uh, the fall in living standards, which is structurally part now of British capitalism, the decimation of those services. That's the economic context, which you can't understand Corbynism without, but also it helps understand why it was enabled to secure the victory in 2017, which would have caused led to a completely different timeline. Let me take you back to May 1997. Actually, these are your words from chapter one. You remind your reader of a meeting in 10 Downing Street. Tony Blair was there, uh, various other people, including Rupert Murdoch, who, of course, played a substantial role both in the uh, reinforcement of um, Thatcher and later of Tony Blair. Uh, I don't want to talk about uh, Rupert Murdoch, but I want to ask you a question which is sensitive, given that um, um, we both read and and write for The Guardian. I mean, you, you write a lot more, but I also write quite a bit for The Guardian. Can we succeed? Can any socialist leadership of the Labour Party that is a threat to the British establishment, can we succeed if newspapers like The Guardian, which we read and right for, are so keen to bring, you know, labor socialist leaderships down uh, with the keenness that they demonstrated in the case of uh, not just Jeremy Corbyn, but also, you know, somebody who is, uh, who comes out very well in your book, like John McDonnell. Well, I, I mean, look, that's my employer, so I need to be careful here. Yes, um, I know, it's, it's, it's a sensitive, sensitive issue. Well, I mean, look, I mean, the perspective I have is, is I was one of the only commentators in the British media who was supportive of Corbyn's leadership. I, I campaigned for him to be leader in 2015. I, I voted for him in both leadership elections. As you point no, out, no, no, I know about you. We're talking about The Guardian now. No, but this is the point I'm making. So I'm just, the point I was making is, you know, within the, the British media ecosystem, just in general first, is one of the most aggressively right-wing uh, partisan, you know, right-wing partisan in, in, in the entire Western world. I think Greece is actually worse, again, by the way. But generally speaking, we, you know, most British newspaper organisations function as the campaigning wings of the Conservative Party. Um, and, and so that, you know, I felt... Personally, just just being in that position was extremely isolating. But it's it's true, of course. You know, look, the, most liberal commentators ended up very pathologically opposed to Corbynism, and it's interesting because I I think of the recent U.S. elections, and I made this point. I have huge problems with Joe Biden. His politics are not mine. I have a huge problem with his record, not least on racism. But I would have crawled through glass to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump because I have a sense of perspective. And I find it unbelievably frustrating that whether those who call themselves liberals and progressives, and I'm a socialist, so of course I'm from a different perspective, but who looked at the choice between Boris Johnson's conservatives, and he was Trumpian in his nature, and didn't come to a rational conclusion about whatever misgivings, whatever justified misgivings, they had with Corbyn and Corbynism, surely they needed to stop a right-wing, hard right-wing, populist, authoritarian, demagogic threat to their own liberal values. And surely, I mean, if we think, is it about, you know, what, was it about civil liberties? I mean, I remember the first day I used to work for John McDonnell. First day I worked for John McDonnell, they, uh, he was organising, helping to organise a rebellion against New Labour's assault on civil liberties and attempt to introduce 90 days detention because Corbyn, to the politics of Corbyn and McDonnell and Diane Abbott was supporting civil liberties against the rapacious authoritarianism of New Labour. So they couldn't say this guy's going to set up a dictatorship because anti-authoritarianism, civil libertarianism, is in the DNA of Corbyn and his allies, political DNA. So th that lack of perspective I found unbelievably frustrating, but I don't have a fatalistic conclusion 
about, I mean, this is why I wrote the book. This is why I, I suppose where I dissent from Len McCluskey's perspective, because if your understanding of what happened to Corbynism is that every left project will always be destroyed by internal sabotage and external attack, then your conclusion is the left is inherently doomed as an enterprise. You have two conclusions then. You either shift to the right and abandon your principles on the basis it's impossible to win and we don't want right-wing hegemony for the rest of our lives, or you abandon politics. But if you don't accept those two alternatives, if you don't accept them, then you have to look at what they got wrong. What were their failings? And that does include looking at how dysfunctional an operation could have been. Because, you know, the easiest book in the world to have written for, I suppose, for a left-wing audience would have just been this failed because it was destroyed by internal attack and external attack. And unquestionably, no leader of the opposition has faced such rampant hostility from their own parliamentary party and their own party machine. And no, at the same time as having to deal with a constant daily assault from the media. That has never happened. And of course, that has huge consequences. And, you know, and why, you know, billionaire, these moguls don't run loss-making newspapers for charity or for a bit of a laugh. They do it because it gives them political influence, which they use aggressively so. And of course, that's all true. But if we end up with a fatalistic conclusion that, you know, the, uh, the press will just destroy any left-wing project, then why are we in politics? I don't, you know, what would be the point? So, of course, that has a damage, a huge damage, but you have to have a strategy to deal with it. And in the end, of course, you know, part of the problem was, frankly, it, you know, that operation fell to bits. It disintegrated, partly because of Brexit. You're absolutely right. And I think it is that point you made about the people's vote, I think is absolutely, absolutely true. Because what the Remain movement did, and this is where we're talking about the big failures of the liberal so-called centre in Britain, what they did with the people's vote is it didn't succeed in winning over any Leave voters. You know, that would be a rational thing to do. If you don't like a referendum result, uh, then it, at the very least, what you would start with is how do we win over people who voted Leave? But they didn't do that. Instead, all they did is made existing Remainers angrier about Brexit. They toxified any other alternative to a hard Brexit. I mean, I, I'm sorry, to a referendum. Uh, so, you know, the softest possible Brexit. I'd write article after article supporting the Norway plus option. And I, was, and I was just screamed out, you're a Brexiteer, all Brexit is terrible. And by doing so, what they did is they made the Labour membership come round to the position of supporting a second referendum. That's what they succeeded in doing. And Corbyn, this is my own view after the European elections, had no choice but to accept a second referendum then because the membership were going to impose it at Labour conference. And you can't have a political project that positions yourself as the tribune of the membership and then disregard what they say on Brexit. But that was a terrible state of affairs to end up in, that the Corbyn project was forced to accept a second referendum position instead of Liberal Remainers cutting their losses. Because what the Liberal Remainers did is they bet their house, they bet their house on a second referendum. And they didn't just lose the house, they lost the kids, they lost the car, and they lost the garage for, for, for good measure. They lost everything. And if they'd set up, we would not be in this situation now. Except one thing. They regained the Labour Party. Um, the Radical Centre regained the Labour Party from Jeremy and John and you and all the comrades. Uh, because for them, that's far more important than even than the European Union. Uh, that's my cynical view, if you want. Uh, look, the, the very term, people's vote, uh, is offensive. What was the first vote? Wasn't it the people's vote? It's like saying you are not the people, you are vermin. Like, you know, Hillary Clinton was talking about the deplorables. The worst thing you can do when you have people who even vote for fascists. You know, we have fascists here in Greece. Uh, the last thing I'm ever going to do as a political leader is um, demonize those who vote for the fascists. Uh, they are lost souls. They are working class people. They are taxi drivers. They are just angry people. And their anger is being harvested by the racists and, and the bigots. And our job is to talk to them, not to demonize them. That's, you know, that, that's my view. I agree. And that's what they did. You know, essentially what a lot of liberal remainers did is portray all leavers as just thick, racist. You know, they were deluded. They were, you know, they kept saying 
there was one, I mean, this just drove me to distraction. Honestly, I've lost so much life, spent so much life arguing with Remainers and that in ultra, ultra Remainers in that period. I once used the term ultra Remainers in a Guardian article and my, you know, it got weeks of abuse. Um, is what, but, you know, it was this sense of just, if you just say that, you know, some of them would argue it was an advisory referendum, which was just the most ridiculous ridiculous argument at the time because every household was given a government funded pamphlet promising the government would honor the referendum result yes yeah but also they also it was this sense of well it was won by lies well unfortunately lots of elections are, are, are won oh, by really? lies yeah. but of course but they, and, and but what they're saying what they didn't understand is a lot of leave voters and i was someone who you know campaigned for remain in reform alongside you uh, and uh, during the referendum campaign here in this country, what they did is, 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 is what leavers heard was people saying, you're stupid, like you're, you're thick, you don't, under that's what they heard. They were like, you're like children and you don't understand the world and you got brainwashed by Facebook ads. That yes. is how people heard it. And they got angry, it made leavers angrier. It didn't make them go, oh, I've changed my mind. It made them, you know, and then it ended up driving more and more leavers to go, I don't want any Brexit deal. I want the hardest possible Brexit and I want no deal Brexit. And that was partly the Brexiteers whipped them up into that position. But the position of many of the Remain leaders had that effect because justifiably the Brexit leaders could go, these people are trying to overturn your democratic result because they think you're stupid. And that was a catastrophic mistake which is why we should have settled on a soft Brexit much earlier on. And I think that's the, I mean, that is, it's difficult coming up with a counterfactual, but one argument would have been after the 2017 election, Labour says, we're never having another referendum. This is what our Brexit deal looks like, clearly defined, campaign on it and ask the government to come and meet with them. Would that have been politically possible at the time when the Labour Party had a rare moment of unity, the membership won cloud nine, you know, it looked like it looked like the Tories were in meltdown. Theresa May was this zombie prime minister. It's easy to say these things with hindsight when politically that looked very, very hard at the time. But it's the, uh, you know, I look back with huge regret. And frankly, I mean, just voting Theresa May's deal over the line, I, I would have, I'd, I'd kill for that. And I was someone who spoke and denounced that deal. It's a terrible deal. But it's, it's nowhere near as bad as the one we've got now. And it could have been amended by a Labour government in power. And instead, we've ended up with a hard right Tory government with a hard Brexit, and that never need, it didn't need to happen. Well, don't get me started on the Norway Plus, because uh, I even gave a talk uh, inside the House of Commons, uh, which was uh, entitled A Marxist Case for a Norway Plus. But yes, forget this. I, uh, I think I quoted I, from it in an article. Uh, I, I want to ask you a question. I want, well, I, I will actually ask you to comment on my view which may be completely wrong, um, miles and miles away from where you are. But this is my hunch. My feeling is that um, uh, Jeremy's suspension by Serkia uh, is um, a very clear attempt to purge the Labour Party of radicals. Am I wrong? Uh, well, I desperately, I desperately hope not. And why that would be so horrendous would be the issue of anti-Semitism, which is a serious issue that has to be addressed, the idea that, you know, I would, I mean, it would be so perverse to use such a serious issue in that sense. You know, I think what was so frustrating about what happened there was actually with the, e the report by the EHRC, I think there was unity uh, on, on its recommendations. I think overwhelming support on the recommendations. On the genuine problem, there was a genuine problem on a minority in the Labour Party with anti-Semitism. That's just unambiguously the case. And more could have been done. Um, and, and a lot of people close to Jamie Corbyn will, will say that, honestly. And I quoted them in the book saying that. And it did. It caused huge upset to Jewish people. That was real. It just, it, that's true. And the issue of anti-Semitism has to be extracted from a factional struggle. It has to be something that the Labour Party can unite on. More broadly, what I'm concerned about is... And obviously, you know, and obviously, obviously, I unambiguously oppose Jamie's suspension as well, by the way. But more, more broadly, what I'd say is, you know, Keir Starmer stood on 10 pledges, which were policy pledges such as taxing the rich to pay for investment, abolishing tuition fees, public ownership, a green industrial revolution. That is his democratic mandate. 
That's what he, he won on the basis of those commitments. And any retreat from those commitments would be a violation of his electoral and democratic mandate. And the other thing is, on its own terms, actually, because there are siren voices around him who clearly want him to abandon uh, those policies, if they succeed in doing that, they actually destroy Keir Starmer because for a politician, it's very hard to win a sense of honesty and integrity and very, very easy. Uh, and and, and um, so it's very hard to establish it, very easy to throw it away. And if the Labour Party doesn't stick to the 10 pledges that Keir Starmer promised, and I, I voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey as, as someone on the left, but those were the, those were the policy pledges he made. If it departs from those policy commitments, then that is a violation of his democratic mandate. And it is up to the left within the Labour Party to hold the leadership to account with that democratic mandate, because they, they can't just turn around and go, you had a candidate and she was defeated, because we can say, well, these are the policy commitments you expressly made to the membership in return for the votes that they gave you. And, and so I think that what the Labour Party, including the, the left momentum, need to be doing is building grassroots pressure inside and outside to put pressure on the Labour leadership to stick to those 10 pledges and not to defy them. And that is something that the left needs to organise around. You know, you, you just brought me back many, many years, decades. I remember Tony Benn making passionate speeches about the importance of staying in the Labour Party and hammering at the manifesto and making sure that the leadership is held to its manifesto promise is something that, of course, it never did uh, <laughs> until Blair came and just wiped out all the manifesto promises and turned into the Thatcherite manifesto, uh, which, you know, because we are coming to the last 15 minutes of our discussion, uh, let's bring in a related question by one of our viewers, uh, Louis, I believe his name, and he says this, I've recently left Labour for the Greens. Having initially given Starmer time, I just couldn't abide him abstaining on clear human rights issues, spy cops, etc. The reason is that within the Greens, it feels that however much they will not be elected, there is at least space for genuine debate around progressive issues. What real reason would there be for people to stay with Labour at this point? Well, I mean, firstly, I, I just bring you up the article I wrote because on, on spy cops, this was the um, allowing basically undercover agents to commit rape, murder if it's legal. Uh, sorry, to, to make it legal. Uh, and the Labour Party abstained. I wrote an article entitled "Labour Standing By as the Government Sanctions State Violence Against Its Citizens." So I completely agree with you on on that. I mean, the point I would say about the Greens, it, look, I hugely respect Caroline Lucas, the Green MP in in, in Brighton. I sat on a platform with you as well and her, uh, but I've campaigned with her on lots of issues where we are in strong agreement on climate justice, public ownership, workers' rights. We've been there. What I would say about the Greens is, firstly, they're not an electorally viable party because of our political system, except in one constituency, which is, of course, Caroline Lucas's constituency. But also, if I'm going to be frank and honest about it, you can see what the Greens did in the Corbyn years is reposition themselves essentially as a hardcore Remain centrist party. I mean, that's what I mean. This is the problem with a lot of these parties that aren't rooted in the Labour movement because the Greens aren't rooted in a class-based mass movement, the trade unions, unlike the Labour Party, where it's got this anchor which constantly, you know, gives it that kind of basis in a movement. So pre-2015 the Greens positioned themselves as anti-austerity leftists. And actually, they were the recipient of, you know, the surge in support for demand for a, a, a left party that existed in other European countries. That came through the Greens in Britain. But what they did after 2015, partly because a lot of their members on the left joined the Labour Party. So the Labour Party was flooded with ex-Green members. And, and, you know, there's these expressions for Green members. There are some who are called watermelons, so they're green on the outside, red in the middle. And then there are mangoes. And the mangoes are the liberal. They're kind of liberal centrist types. And they became very dominant in the Green Party after 2015 as the watermelons flooded into the Labour Party. So whilst I hugely respect Caroline Lucas, my point about the Green Party, although I agree with them on the environmental emergency, is they're not electorally viable. And actually, they opportunistically shifted 
into one of the most ardent pro, I mean, Caroline Lucas was a leading member of People's Vote, into a hardcore Remain. They denounced, they kept denouncing the Labour leadership as Brexiteers. So they were part of the process of making Remainers more angry about Brexit, which partly led to the situation we're now in. So my own view is, I mean, best of luck. I understand your frustrations, and particularly on this one issue, which I'm very passionate about. I've interviewed women who had relations with undercover police officers. It's horrendous that Labour would even consider abstaining on such an issue. But I just don't think the Greens are viable or desirable. That Whoever you are, we're on the same side and we'll no doubt be marching together when it's legal to do so and united on the issues that, that unite all of us. One brief comment on this in support of Lewis. Uh, not of his actions, but his basic point about in, internal party democracy. Um, and in conjunction with what Tony Benn you, you, was saying, which we're still trying to realize in the Labour Party, or you're still trying to realize in the Labour Party, which is internal democracy. You can have all these discussions, um, you know, all the way to, to the autumn uh, party conference, uh, and then you have a leadership that simply sets aside the manifesto, the policies that were... Uh, discussed and uh, approved of democratically. This sense that this is comp- a, to- a totally top-down, uh, closed shop of a party that many who have left the party recently for the Greens have told me, not just Louis today here. But let me combine this question with the next one, which comes from Natalia Hussein. You said that politics is still stuck within the structure of Thatcherism. Do you see a way to dismantle this going forward? And... Is there a chance that the current conservative leadership under Johnson has already be- begun to undermine Thatcherism by abandoning austerity? You know what? There's a really interesting point in that. And it, it would be a mistake, and it is a mistake, to just continue positioning ourselves in our struggle with the Conservative government as though they're like the Cameron Osborne or even Theresa May government. Because, of course, what 2010 onwards did is the Tory government tried to well, did force millions of people to pay for a crisis caused by, by the financial sector and their allies uh, through austerity. And uh, that, that was continued by Theresa May. But what Boris Johnson's allies tapped into, and their form of right-wing populism, it, it reminds me a bit, I mean, if you look at, for example, Hungary or Poland, which are both ruled by authoritarian right-wing populists, but their economic agendas are quite complicated. Poland, they, they, the Law and Justice Party, this right-wing populist party, have a welfareist approach. They've expanded the welfare state. They, they have this, uh, you know, something called polonization, which is to increase public ownership of the banks. Mm-hmm. In Hungary, the right-wing regime nationalized the pension funds, not things you would normally say are compatible with neoliberalism, as any of us understand it. And I think the danger with... What even though Thatcherism does remain the dominant rubric of British society, is what we are seeing is the Tories went into the 2019 election promising investment. That's what they did. And uh, they, you know, not to have austerity, they went for a populist. Their coalition was based on get Brexit done and uh, invest in three particularly popular areas, schools, police, and what was the other one? Police. Someone will remember. Sorry, that general election feels like a lifetime away. But they said they would have strategic areas of investment. That said, and obviously the government have had to take emergency measures like all capitalist governments to, uh, to preserve capitalism from coronavirus, which means unprecedented state involvement in the economy. But actually, Rishi Sunak, who is the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, in this country, his position, I think, is far more of a pro-austerity position than Boris Johnson. Look, Boris Johnson himself is a chameleon and he will shift politically according to what he thinks is is most desirable. Rishi Sunak, I think, wants to implement widespread austerity. He opposed lockdown uh, already, the new wave of lockdown on the uh, the economic consequences, and also was resistant to many of the wide-ranging economic measures that he's had to take. And I think he's clearing, laying the foundations after a vaccine is is hopefully discovered uh, and immunisation and, and vaccination takes place, I think we'll see a return to the sorts of cuts and austerity, maybe even on a more drastic level, because you can't, otherwise they'll have to take on their big business ba- base by increasing progressive taxes, uh, you know, on, 
on their own donors. And that is simply, you know, that, that means going to war on the class basis of the Conservative Party. They won't do that. They will resort to a t- traditional Conservative approach, which is to use a crisis to shift wealth and power in favour of those at the top. So I think it will be interesting because I think Rishi Sunak leads that faction, the austerity faction, that Boris Johnson did make tentative measures towards the kind of right-wing populism we saw in Hungary and Poland, which did depart from economic neoliberalism in certain ways, definitely. Don't forget that Mussolini was the political leader who introduced pensions, universal pensions in Europe. It was not the Social Democrats, it was the fascists that did it. On the basis that, you know, I will look after you, you give me absolute authority over you, destroy your organizations like labor unions. Penultimate question, coming from Isabel, and the last one will come from me. Do you agree that the politics of identity is a driving force on the left? And will this just lead to greater disunity amongst the underprivileged? Well, look, what the left has always been about is the emancipation of all humanity from all forms of oppression and injustice and bigotry as well, for that matter. Um, You know, I think there's always been this slightly class reductionist interpretation of socialism, which is, it reminds me a bit of a Trotskyist leader who, um, (laughs) who was, I don't know if this is an apocryphal tale, but he apparently was asked by a female comrade But what happens to uh, women under socialism? And he said, very thoughtfully, went, why don't you put on the kettle and then I'll, I'll, I'll share with you my thoughts. And there was always that set, you know, there was, an, there was an old left, which, which a new left, which actually people like Corbyn and McDonald and Diane Abbott actually resisted, which is to say in the 70s, which is class oppression and class politics is the basis of the left, but we need to integrate the struggles against racism Uh, for women's rights and for gay rights. That was the struggle that you saw in the in the 1970s to change, to transform the Labour Party. And, you know, we got this in the late 80s over the issue of gay rights, where Thatcherism tried to weaponize the issue against the left. The term loony left was used as a widespread term in British politics, particularly to target Labour councils who supported LGBTQ people through services and so on. And that's why they introduced Section 28, which banned the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools, in practice, even talking about uh, gay issues in schools, um, because they thought that would, you know, that would damage the Labour Party as well. You know, it was a culture war. And uh, Patricia Hewitt, who was the press secretary to Neil Kinnock, wrote to him saying, uh, the gay issue is damaging us amongst pensioners. But obviously it was the right thing to do. It was entrenched homophobia at the time, rampant homophobia in British still is, but far greater back then. The vast majority of people thought homosexuality was wrong, according to the British Social Attitude Survey at the time. But you wouldn't say at the time, well, this gayish, I mean, well, you shouldn't, people did actually. I mean, there were some leftists who said homosexuality was a petty bourgeois deviation, which would disappear with capitalism. But, you know, the, the, the struggle, you know, because working class people aren't just straight white men, you know, working class people include black people, include they include migrants. They include people who are gay or trans. They include people who are women. Uh, you know, they include women of women of color. You know, a, the left class politics has to accept that some members of the working class are more oppressed than others, and not just for economic uh, because of economic exploitation. You know, women are disproportionately concentrated in the lowest paid and most insecure work. Uh, people of color are paid less and suffer racial discrimination and racial abuse within the workplace. A, a low paid gay uh, supermarket worker is living in poverty but also can't hold hands in the streets with their partner these are all injustices the left you know with, with, without the fear of abuse or attack these are all injustices the left has to uh, has to champion so i think it would be a big danger if the left but you know when people say let's abandon identity politics i always wonder what they mean by it but to me it always sounds you know the question i would ask is which minority are you prepared to throw under which boss Because when we talk about identity politics, what we're really talking about is the struggle of women and minorities for, for justice, for equality and for acceptance. And that is demonized as identity politics that I don't, you can't have a left uh, that, is, that is worthy of the name unless it, it, it challenges all forms of oppression, not just economic exploitation, but those forms of oppression as well. Here, here. Um, exploitation has a tendency to divide and multiply divisions. And divided we fall, as we used to say, once upon a time. Well, we're coming 
to a close, I want you to have the final word, maybe with a comment on the United States election. Uh, for me, I just finished off by with Woody Guthrie. <laughs> this land is your land and this land is my land. This land was made for you and me. This land is uh, Owen Jones's book that needs to be read and discussed. Final word on that land, on the other side of the Atlantic. You know, I, I think what's remarkable about the United States is the US left as a political force in a way that it simply hasn't been for a very long time. What the Bernie Sanders campaign did in 2016 is rejuvenate and resurrect a left which predominantly appeals to younger people uh, uh, in the United States. And that is very important because in the mid-80s, the most pro-Reagan demographic for a while were younger people. There's nothing automatic about younger people being attracted to the left. And, you know, we see now the so-called squad of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Ilan Omar and, and others. That squad has now doubled in this election. And what we've seen as well is, you know, across the United States, uh, we saw them, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, protest explode. And what the efforts of those movements in, in places like Georgia, they had a massive role on voter registration, on enrolling people en masse to vote to get rid of Trump. So it's very important that the narrative of what happened with the defeat of Trump, and I do think without the pandemic, he would have won again myself, that because of the mass mobilizations by progressive organizations, that has played an absolute critical role in the defeat of Trump. But the point now is the danger is the so-called centrist tendency will now be full of a triumphalism where they will say, uh, we will marginalize the left and they were always going to say, find a way to spin this against the left, whatever the, the outcome. But they will say now our, our victory was narrower because of uh, because the left is is used to portray us as extreme and therefore we must marginalize the left. If Trump had won, they would have blamed the left. If they'd have won a landslide, they would have said the left's irrelevant. So the left was always going to get, you know, couldn't it was always lose-lose in that sense. But the triumphalism won't just be that. It will be, we've conquered Trump. And, you know, their sense of, their objections to Trump often weren't about the politics. They didn't have some big passionate opposition to cutting taxes on the rich. They didn't have big opposition to sending drone missiles to kill black people in foreign countries. They didn't object to those things. For them, often it was civility. He was too vulgar. He wasn't presidential enough. And, and what we actually need is not just the repudiation of Trump, but Trumpism and to understand the injustices that created Trumpism, because Trumpism is not dead in the United States. It will live on after this. And particularly now, if the Senate isn't controlled by the Democrats, we will have the danger as a do-nothing presidency, which I think sits well with lots of the Democratic establishment, as the Trump Trumpists and the Republican Party regroup, keep rigging the electoral systems at the state, state by state, in their favour, which they've already done on a mass scale, which is very, very important and needs to be uh, resisted. And then they'll say, well, the presidency hasn't done anything. And then uh, sweep away in terms of the next elections, less people will come out and vote for the Democrats because mobilising their base is something which they that's why they, they lose, even when they win the popular vote, as they have in the seven of the last eight presidential elections. Um, and Trump, you know, the Republicans will get out their vote. So what the, the argument now, we've got a left in America that's strong. It has charismatic figureheads and leaders like AOC, one of the most charismatic politicians of our times. And they were put there by those movements. And, we, you know, what now BLM and those other mass movements now have to build pressure within the Democrats to get more of those people to win primaries, to defeat the old guard of the Democratic establishment and offer a genuine, inspiring alternative. Because the danger otherwise is the centrist will be full of triumphalism and in four years' time, we will end up with someone even worse than Trump, more polished, more, more extreme, more dangerous, and then that could be the end of American democracy. We've won breathing space. That's what the Biden victory means, breathing space. It's a terrible defeat for right-wing populists and authoritarians all over the world, but it is only the start and what comes next is the most determined struggle ever against the injustices that created the monstrosity of Trumpism, because otherwise it will still devour American democracy and the American Republic, which remains imperiled. And it's up to the left to build that inspiring alternative to stop that from happening. 
Well, Owen, thank you. It was a pleasure. A massive honour, honestly, Yanis. And I can't wait to see you in person. We should stop meeting by Zoom. Had enough. I know exactly. We'll, we'll have a pint. I'm not displeased not have not not to have seen the inside of an aeroplane for a while. <laughs> but I'm you see because the left cannot do without person-to-person meetings, without touch, without being in the same room. Uh, the right and the finances can easily do things by clicking buttons on computers. So. Carpe diem, as we say, in our movement. Let's seize the day. Thank you for the book and thank you for this talk. It was a huge honour, as ever. This week's podcast starred Owen Jones and Yanis Varoufakis, was produced by Luke Naylor Perro and myself, and edited by John Doughty. You can join us live for conversations just like the one you've listened to almost every night of the week at howtoacademy.com. And if that's still not enough, you'll find plenty more to enjoy on our YouTube channel. I've been Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>